Hey everybody, welcome to another War Report episode. This is our 10th episode on the Russo-Ukrainian War. It's been a few months since we've done one of these, so we've missed a lot. So this time we're kind of uh, getting back into the saddle, as you could say. I'm joined by a few guests. I have John from the Fence Bulletin. You guys know him. Um, I also have Sino Talk. You guys know him as well. And then lastly, I have the young Judean on who is our newest contributor to the bulletin for the borderlands and basically what we're going to be talking about is since it's been uh, such a long time since we've done one of these we'll be talking about the uh, counteroffensive over the summer the ukrainian counteroffensive really the end of it um and how uh unsuccessful it was we're also going to be talking about the current situation in the war as it pertains to uh, the situation on the front lines actually and then things such as western aid um some of the advantages that the ukrainians have some of the advantages that the russians currently have and yeah like i said really just getting back into the saddle since it's been so long since we've done one of these uh, but i really hope you guys enjoy the podcast and i know my guests do as well before you get started here you could check out Bolton from the Borderlands, that is a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art and culture. Take a look at the journals Bolton from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication for multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash analyzeeducate. Ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash analyze educate or analyze educate.substack.com. We appreciate all the support you guys throw our way. You could find all those links in the show notes below. And if you choose to support us on any of those three platforms, you get some perks as well. So again, thank you very much for your support. With that being said, we'll head into the episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the War Report. We are doing the Russo-Ukrainian War again. It's been a while since we've done one of these. I think the last one was August or September timeframe, so it's definitely been a bit, and a lot has happened since then. I'm joined again by John. You probably know him by now. He's been on a lot of recent episodes. I have Sino Talk again. He's been on a lot of episodes as well, and we have uh, Young Judean, who is his first episode on here. So how's it going, guys? What's going on, man? Hey, what's up? Okay, so let's just head right into it. So like I said, it's been a while since we've done one of these, so a lot has happened. It's been almost two years since the invasion began. Of course, that was February of 22, so we're about a month and a half off. It's early January right now. Uh, The Euromaidan protests began over 10 years ago at this point. They began on November 21st, 2013, depending on who you ask. Uh, They might say that was the start of the Russo-Ukrainian War. Other people might say it was the annexation of Crimea. Again, kind of depends on who you ask, but this situation has been going on for 10 years. Whether you want to include that protest movement as part of the war or not, it definitely was a leading cause of the war. Looking at casualties, these are estimates. We really don't have good numbers, and these numbers only get updated every so often. So the UN has acknowledged at least 10,749 civilian deaths. The true toll is likely much higher than that. Again, we just don't know. And this only gets updated uh, every so often. Actually, that number is from August 1st. So it's been a bit. Looking at Russian casualties, uh, BBC's Russian service has identified at least 34,857 
uh, Russian KIAs by name. Now, that does not include forces from Luhansk or Donetsk. At the beginning of the war, those forces were separate from the Russian armed forces. Now, as far as LDNR goes, they have identified over 20,000 KIAs by name. John, what do you got? Yeah, so I, I do know that there was this report in December. Um, it hit Reuters and a couple other uh, news outlets. There's the the um, defense officials, obviously, once again, in a, uh, from a position of anonymity. Um, it's kind of a trend now we see all the time. Um, it's just the way they do press releases now, right? Um, they were talking about in uh, excess of 315,000 Russian casualties, I believe. that That's the number that was being floated around. They didn't really cite um, how, you know, by you know what uh, means of intelligence that they you know got this through um obviously it wasn't like a report it wasn't a release it was kind of them them giving an anonymous statement and then we kind of saw this big hubbub obviously on twitter and then in the, in the whole OSINT space people saying well oh my goodness that's you know 87 percent of uh what they went in there with and so then people get this weird idea in their head today oh yeah they're only fighting with like what forty thousand people like obviously not they've done like they've yeah. done like three to four mobilizations since then um and if we're but if we're going to believe that they even mobilized at least half of what they said they mobilized that they they have they've been able to successfully mobilize anywhere in excess of five hundred thousand people i mean uh forces at this point if that's about half right they've done about three total mobilizations, each one was supposed to have at least a target of 300,000. I believe there may have been one with 200,000. So if we, if we go with about half, and then you have that fourth semi one that wasn't necessarily, um, uh, that one never really, I don't know if they panned out or not because um, that was kind of coinciding with the Wagner thing and who knows how that kind of went. And I do know they gave the Roscardia some certain um, uh, new stipulations and other things like that. So who knows how that went, but I, I would keep that in mind though, that that number did come out um, and uh, I, I, at the same time, but I think that should be indicative of the Ukrainian numbers as well. Um, I think a good example is right when the DOD released that like the Russians had a lot or their defense officials, once again, from a position of anonymity saying like early last year that the Russians had lost like 71,000 casualties. That was the number that popped up, if I remember correctly. And then they were trying to say that the Ukrainians had somehow lost 17,000. That just doesn't make any sense. Um, now, arguably, that was directly before the counteroffensive, right? Obviously, we should expect the Ukrainians to have a high attrition rate. We'll get into that later, probably, as well. But that's just a, a tidbit there. Yeah, so for the Russians, uh, the U.S. government is estimating approximately 120,000 killed in action and 180 to 190,000 uh, wounded in action. That was of, as of mid-August. You talked about that report from, you know, unnamed government officials. Um, and it was just kind of like... A useless report, honestly, like you were saying, um, I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 315 casualties overall killed and wounded. And they said, oh, you know, that's 70 percent of the force that Russia invaded with, which is I mean, it's it's stupid. That's it's just not a real fact because that 315,000 number takes into account not only just general Russian military, right? It takes into account. Roskvardia, the Russian National Guard, right, which is not part of the Russian Ministry of Defense. So you should not include that in the in the invasion number, right, the 70% of the force. Um, it takes into account guys that have been mobilized since last fall, right, which is a lot. A lot of those guys have been killed since then. 
Um, it takes into account people that have gone into volunteer battalions, which obviously post-invasion as well, and then people that have just generally signed contracts post-invasion. So it's kind of, it's a stupid number. Russia has not lost 70% of the force they invaded Ukraine with, you know, it's, like I said, you know, it's kind of just a cool little number to like recite if you're like at the bar with your boys and you like talk about this shit all the time like we do. Um, but that's really it. That's really not much more than that. Now for Ukraine, uh, like you were saying, the U.S. government estimates that Ukraine has taken about 70,000 KIAs and hundred to 120,000 uh, wounded in action. And that's pretty much where we're at with casualties. Again, not real concrete numbers and they're generally a few months old but that's really the best we've got right now looking at equipment losses this is coming from the uh, oryx blog now the guy that runs oryx or i should say ran oryx is no longer doing it but thankfully some of the guys that were working with him have agreed to continue to update these lists as long as the war is going on so we're thankful for that Russia has had at least 13,799 equipment losses. And again, this is only things that we can visually confirm. So the number is likely higher than that. For example, they're still finding equipment losses from like the beginning of the invasion. You know, not all the time, but, you know, sometimes it will. So they're still out there. I'm not going to go over all the equipment losses, but just some of the big things for tanks. They've lost 2,619. And again, that includes destroyed, uh, damaged or abandoned and captured. Right, for armored fighting vehicles, infantry fighting vehicles, and APCs, 4,700, I'm sorry, yeah, 4,751 lost for fixed-wing aircraft. They've lost 99, they've lost 134 helicopters and 20 naval vessels. That includes submarines and surface vessels as well. For Ukraine, they've lost at least 4,956 pieces of equipment. That includes 729 tanks. 1,337 armored fighting vehicles, infantry fighting vehicles, and APCs all put together, 78 fixed-wing aircraft, 36 helicopters, and 28 naval vessels. And again, these are pretty big losses for both sides, but these are only the things that we can visually confirm at this point. Now, the war can be broken down into, at this point, six phases. So we are in the sixth phase right now, and that's a 2023 to 24 winter where we're seeing kind of a stalemate right in the aftermath of ukraine's summer counteroffensive that really did not go anywhere uh it was it was a failure if you're being honest about it right so getting into that we might as well look at the areas of control john oh yeah i didn't know if you wanted to go into the counteroffensive i think we should do the control terrain first that sounds like a good idea okay yeah and then we'll hit the counteroffensive after so looking at the the sort of terrain of control the battle right now russia controls a very small portion of kharkiv oblast which they have pretty much ever since the uh kharkiv counteroffensive last fall i want to say it was time frame or maybe it was late summer um so that really hasn't changed much they control over 90 percent of luhansk about half of donetsk most of zaporizhia which is where we saw the counteroffensive for the most part uh ukraine's counteroffensive and they control Kherson Oblast uh, to the east of the Dnieper River. Ukraine was able to take back some territory in Zaporizhia uh, during the summer counteroffensive, although not a whole hell of a lot. We'll get into that in a bit. Some territory in Donetsk changed hands between both sides since our last episode, but again, not a whole hell of a lot. Really nothing of, of note there. 
Russian forces recently captured Marinka after basically almost 10 years of battle. This battle for the city really began uh, when the war in Donbass kicked off. During, you know, 2014 to 2015, there was active fighting. Post-2015, you pretty much just had artillery shelling leading up to about a week before the invasion. That's when fighting actually really kicked off. And now the city is captured by Russia fully. Now the city is almost entirely destroyed. You really have a small handful of buildings left that are even somewhat standing. So, um, yeah, it's pretty much been wiped off the map, right? The Russians likely took took the city, excuse me, in an attempt to pressure the city of Volnadar, which is to the southwest of Marinka. Now, the Russians tried taking that city a while back. I want to say it was over the summer, if memory serves correct, and that was a complete disaster. Uh, Russian Marines and I think some VDV forces kind of spearheaded the assaults in the area, and they just got chewed up by mines and ATGMs and stuff like that. Ukraine's defense in that area was very good. So it seems like Russia is trying to pressure that city by coming from the uh, northeast. Fighting has gone on around Bakhmut uh, really ever since the battle for the city began. Now, of course, Russia controls the city, but the suburbs to the north and south are still like very much contested. You know, they change hands. Every while and again, Ukraine is able to take some territory to the north and south of the city over the uh, counteroffensive in the summer, and then Russia was able to take some of that territory back. So again, um, pretty much just been a stalemate in that area for months at this point. And then you also had a major assault on the city of Avdivka in Donetsk Oblast. Now, I think the situation in that city is kind of stabled out at this point. Russia, I believe, took the uh, coke and chemical plant, which is like the main industrial area in Avdivka. This is something that we see a lot in these uh, larger towns and cities in the Donbass, you have these industrial areas, right? We saw this in Bakhmut, we saw this in Mariupol. We're seeing it here in Avdiivka too, that has been captured, but the general situation around the city has stabilized for now. I'm sure we'll see uh, continued fighting and offensives there in the future, but right now it's pretty much just fighting back and forth between uh, the defenses on both sides. Ukrainian infantry in Kherson Oblast has crossed the Dnieper River into Russian-controlled land. Again, that's on the eastern side of the Dnieper River. Uh, they were able to establish a small beachhead and have gained control over a very small amount of territory in the area. But it's really uh, nothing, nothing of note. I want to say Ukraine has probably two companies of Marines on that beachhead right now. So that's obviously not a whole hell of a lot. They're holding on to it right now, but um, it's it's definitely nothing game changing in terms of the big picture. And lastly, as far as areas of control goes, Ukrainian Telegram Channel, uh, Deep State, which is pretty accurate with their mapping of the war from the invasion on, they assess that Ukraine has liberated 395 uh, square kilometers of territory last year. In that same time period, Russia occupied an additional 683 square kilometers. So that's not a lot of territory. Russia has occupied more than Ukraine took back last year. But again, a few hundred square kilometers, that is not a whole hell of a lot. So that just kind of tells you the general situation of what's going on right now. John? Yeah, and I think you correctly mentioned it before, right, that, you know, this, this conflict has kind of reached a stalemate, essentially, right? Um we kind of see, you know, uh, I mean, there's the argument to be made, like you just said, the facts that you just stated, right, that Russia um, 
has arguably made a little bit more gains in the past year. I've actually almost double the gains that um, Ukraine has made um, in the past year. Um, and I, and this is this is with the Ukrainians, you know, committing to this massive counteroffensive. Um, uh, I don't know if you want to get into the counteroffensive now. I, I, maybe it's a good time to do that. Um, but um, but like they just overall the counteroffensive, right? We did, it's kind of dubbed the spring summer counteroffensive. Um, I think from the get go, you know, it, I don't want to say doomed to fail because you know there's a lot of you know pro people pro Ukrainian probably listen to this and maybe even pro Russian listen to this. But I think the thing is though to be honest about you know the the what the um, potential for success that was you know really going to come from this counteroffensive. I think we were saying early on, right? We were saying before the counteroffensive, right? Uh, specifically, you and me, and in some of the pods, right? If they don't use Western equipment the way Western equipment's supposed to be used, right? Uh, you know, we we've, we've talked about how Western equipment um, is it's made to potentiate a doctrine and vice versa, right? Um, so if you use a if you use a um, uh, an Abrams or a Leopard or a Challenger tank for that matter, um, uh, like a T sixty two or a T seventy four, right, or T ninety eight, right, you, you're not going to get the same effect, you know. On the battlefield, um, and I think they they sadly the Ukrainians learned it the hard way. There's a there's a lot of factors that played into that that we can definitely delve into as well. Um, but the first thing I did want to highlight though on that is the um, the way they kind of like telegraphed everything that they were going to do. Now I understand part of that was because what they wanted they needed the aid right at the end of the day because so much of their combat power was was contingent on getting more aid. I mean, um, getting more aid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So much of their combat power is contingent on getting more aid, right? And so they kind of had to telegraph, you know, consistently, constantly, we're doing this counteroffensive in the spring or in the summer, right? We're doing this in a couple months. And so all the Russians had to do was dig in deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and keep building their, you know, the defenses more in depth. And uh, we, we kind of accurately predicted how this might have turned out. So I think there's a lot that could be said about the counteroffensive and just some of the things that went wrong and just did not look right. Um, from the start. One of the things that I don't think we talked about before, but um, it's something that we probably should have. And it, to me, it seems like it was a big issue throughout most of the counteroffensive is on average, you would have these new Ukrainian brigades go out there and spearhead these assaults. And these brigades, if they would go on the offensive, would only be able to field two reinforced companies at a time for an offensive, which is, that's an issue. So let's take the 47th mechanized for an example, right? They saw a lot of action during the counteroffensive and they got they got chewed up pretty bad, right? There was a few incidents uh, where they did not have a good time in their frontal assault, right? So that brigade has three mechanized battalions, an assault battalion, actually two assault battalions. So what? Are, let's scrub those assault battalions. Let's just say you have the three mechanized Let's say you have at least three infantry companies for each battalion, right? That's nine companies for the brigade. If you're only able to field two reinforced companies for an attack for an entire brigade out of at least nine companies, that's a major issue. And as the counteroffensive went on, this issue only got worse and worse, you know, instead of reinforced companies, you would basically see like reinforced platoons go out and like half platoons to where it was like, you know, 16 guys going up against Russian defenses. And it's just obviously that's a major issue, right? That is, is not a good situation to be in when you're in the middle of a counteroffensive when the weather is perfect for it, right? Which is what Ukraine was prepping for. Judea? 
I absolutely agree. Um, I would say that the Russians were also very smart about what they asked for and when they asked their allies for it. And with the understanding of the mechanics of the counteroffensive and with the ability to prepare for it, they were incredibly strategic with their materials and their supply chain. And now we're seeing sort of the blowback of that, um, how the North Koreans have been supplying their missiles. And, you know, uh, just to draw from the brief here, um, it's said that North Korea has supplied Russia in the last four months with more missiles than the entire EU has given Ukraine. And I think that that is purely because of the visibility of the counteroffensive and their ability and their desire now to aggress. And just to also um, write off what John was saying, um, doctrine and equipment is so important to understand what's going to happen next because they're loading up on a lot of aggressive stuff right now. It is not defensive materials. Of course, they're getting those as well, but um, you don't buy that many missiles to sit on the sidelines. So I think what happens in the next few months is going to be pretty serious. Also, listen, um, regardless of how one feels about Ukraine, their supply chain is under massive threat right now. And the court of public opinion is sort of ruling harshly on them after the counteroffensive. So these things will play a massive part in the next year, the next two or three phases of the war. Yeah, you know, um, one of the one of the analysts that I know me and John both follow a lot as far as this war goes is Michael Kaufman. Um, he is like one of the two analysts that I really like and, and seems to generally be on the money in terms of this war. And one thing that I disagree with him on is I listened to a recent episode with him and he was basically talking about how Ukraine did this maneuver on the uh, eastern bank of the Dnieper River in Kherson, right? And it just, it didn't really make a lot of sense. You know, you had, again, like two companies worth of guys on this beachhead right before the winter starts. And it's like, you're probably not going to accomplish a whole hell of a lot. So like, what was the point? Why wouldn't you just wait until after the winter, you know, and save those forces when, you, when you've already taken a good amount of casualties, right? There's a lot of conversation about uh, Ukraine's force structure and, you know, how they need to continue mobilization. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later, but, you know, it just goes to, goes to say that this maneuver in on the eastern bank in Kherson just it didn't really make a lot of sense and he theorized that Ukraine made this maneuver to show the west something right he believes that Ukraine thinks their aid from the west is kind of conditioned on being able to show us that they're they're making some sort of progress right and Michael Kaufman theorizes that that actually isn't the case um, you know, the West is, we understand that this is going to be a long war, right? We're kind of in it to win it. Um, and, you know, if Ukraine can't make gains, visible gains, then, hey, you know, whatever, it's going to happen at some point. We kind of just need to uh, wait it out and, and be smart. I would disagree with him on that a little bit. Uh, Judan, you know, you talked about um, the court of public opinion and stuff like that. And I agree with you 100%. You know, I think especially after the summer counteroffensive being, I mean, really the failure that it was, if you're being honest about it. Um, there are some in the West who have already generally been more skeptical about Ukraine aid or are looking at this and, and saying, hey, you know, we need peace talks or we need to, you know, seriously talk about what we're doing in Ukraine, how much aid we're giving them and, and our strategy, right? Some, some things need to change. Um, 
and not not everybody has that opinion right obviously you have a lot of division there's a lot of people in the west that like wholeheartedly support ukraine 100 percent, and they are in it to win it they're in for the long haul right but you have a lot of people that are that are also looking at this situation with more skepticism and the court of public opinion should absolutely be um looked at and understood and not underestimated john Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think uh, I'm glad that Dan mentioned right the uh, North Korean aid and the missile sent right. Um, because th there's one thing that we've consistently seen. Um, and I think uh, I think you Dan mentioned it before, right? This idea that they're getting a lot of aggressive stuff. But I, I, you know, I'd piggyback off them and say not only they're getting a lot of aggressive stuff, but they're getting like really high end aggressive stuff, right? And so if there's one thing that's true about the Ukrainian military is well, they may have gone through almost ten years of training under Western. Um, doctrine and Western training cycles, right? They're still not necessarily well equipped to fight that high end fight that you know a lot of these Western militaries are used to, right? Um, uh, and we're, we're arguably seeing, right, that you know all this these high end weapon systems aren't really it's 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 going to be hard to replenish and reconstitute forces or specifically material um, when you can do this, right? North Korea, right, uh, is is sending them missiles that are not comparable to Taurus or Scalp G or Tomahawk missiles. Or storm shadow, right? Um, but like, but at the end of the day, they can they can fire ten of these things and have ten more ready. Whereas Ukraine can fire will fire ten of these things. They'll have no more, and they'll have to wait for the next aid package to come. They, I mean, there's also some other thing to be said about domestic defense, um, the defense domestic defense industry, right? Which is something that, arguably, and I think I've said this before, right? That they should have been on that ten years ago, or like the day Russia went into Crimea, we should have been trying to revitalize their domestic defense industry. Um, I, I do think that's a massive mistake or oversight um, by just the Western community in general, because um, we, we, we're kind of doing it late now. Um, and we're doing it late now after we realize that we can't reconstitute their whole force that they lost in the counteroffensive. Um, and to the point you made, uh, Brody, right, you mentioned how um, you kind of disagree with, um, you know, you know what Michael Kaufman uh, had mentioned. And I, I, I tend to agree, right, um, because. I, I do believe that not only do Ukrainians understand that, uh, you know, their uh, more aid is contingent on and just making some type of gain on the battlefield, but they also know that the, they may not say it straight up, right? But they also know, you know, the, the actual result of the counteroffensive, right? We can all see it and they understand that there's going to be a massive amount of reticence in the Western community to send them that same amount of aid, billions of billions of dollars of aid for them to do the same thing. And then and so this kind of moves into another point that I was going to make about um, just communicating with their advisor nations as well, right? So we saw a couple articles come out where defense officials, once again, from a position of an anonymous, um, uh, an anonymous position, right? They were saying that the Ukrainians at one point during the counteroffensive um, stopped picking the phone up, right? They weren't answering the phone. And and I think I heard it best said by a friend of mine, and they, they essentially said, right, like, hey, the only reason we said that they did this, right, was something that much to them that, like, hey, like more aid is not only contingent on, you know, you making gains on the battlefield, but also you need to be picking the phone up, yeah. right? If, yeah. if we're going to be sending you billions of dollars in aid and things, at the very least you can do is pick up the phone. Um, and then, you know, compounding on that point, they were told there's this idea and I, you do have to give them some credit, right? For they're the ones fighting the fight. They know exactly what's going on on the ground, but they were consistently ignoring the advice of commanders who, who knew what who, they understand combined arms warfare and things like this, and they just wouldn't do things. And I think you you mentioned it right uh, yourself, right? You know, they weren't committing enough forces. There's a specific one that DOD officials had specifically mentioned a specific case um, 
when it came to the main thrust, right, we kind of saw these, you know, shaping operations and then um, these probing operations. Then we had this main thrust in, thrust in the southeast, I believe, right? Um, and apparently they were told that you need to, you know, pull forces, it, you know, exactly what you do, right? You know, you know, um, typical, uh, you know, they were supposed to reallocate forces and concentrate them at one point to potentiate that breakthrough, um, that penetration, and then you break through, right? An explosive breakthrough. They were telling the the U.S. You know, they were telling uh, Ukrainian high was telling U.S. commanders, right? Well, we can't do this because it weakens the rest of our line. Well, that is true. That's kind of the whole point of potentiating that breakthrough, because once you break through their line, right? They then had they then cannot exploit your weakness along along the lines elsewhere, right? And so they didn't commit enough forces to begin with. Um, and, and U.S. commanders said that from the get-go that they, they hadn't committed enough forces to begin with, but went ahead with it anyway. Um, and I think that's a huge, huge thing here. Now, then the last thing I would mention, though, is that early on, about midway through the counteroffensive, U.S. Um, officials also mentioned to news uh, organizations, right, that before the Ukrainians even went in, began a counteroffensive, they knew they didn't have enough forces to do it. And, and I'm not going to quote it because I don't remember the exact quote. But the gist of what they told, um, you know, reporters was um, we, we thought that their, you know, kind of like will to, you know, carry the day was going to like carry like their will to fight was going to carry the day, which as, as, you know, as optimistic as that sounds, I mean, that's the most unrealistic statement I've ever heard from the DOD. Other than, I mean, since then, we've seen some pretty crazy stuff. But from like someone who's from, you know, we're hearing this from people who do combined arms warfare for a living. They know, as they were saying that, that that just doesn't make any sense. They, they had, right? Um, I, I think there is something to be said for a will to fight, but when you're not going to conduct an operation correctly, and you don't, and, and you don't have the f- amount of forces to even do said operation to begin with, I, I just don't know why. And so I think someone should have told the Ukrainians, "Hey, don't do this." And I think there was no one there doing that. And, and I'm not saying it's our fault, but I do think some of that should be laid at our feet as well. Um, but it seemed no one was telling the Ukrainians, like, hey, you don't have to go do this. You can consolidate the games you have. I mean, Kharkiv was huge, right? They could have sat out, sat out that game right there, consolidated their forces, reconstituted fully, right? I don't think 29 brigades was enough to conduct this operation. It wasn't, right? 29 brigades was what they had in reserve. That was their reserve. Um, and then they were slowly rotating guys back and forth who were already on the front line. So these are depleted units. Um, and so th- their main thrust was essentially supposed to be this, these 29 brigades which they then piecemeal introduced to the front lines, which is not exactly how you're supposed to do that. I mean, I'm no expert in warfare, but I'm just saying, right? So, but, um, so we saw a lot of these, you know, these things that didn't really make much sense. And so I think the whole way this counteroffensive was conducted, it was really uh, based off of, you know, people say the wonder weapon fever, right? This idea that they got all these high-end weapons and they're going to like, it's going to be Abrams in Moscow leopards in moscow i heard some people say right yeah it's um, are gonna end the war exactly yeah and, and, and so we see the same thing now right they're gonna get like they're gonna get the idea that they're gonna get 13 f-16s and it's gonna be a game changer right and, and and i think i said this on the pod before right that people are like oh well they don't have they didn't have com- the full you know com- amount of combined arms assets that is true they didn't right they couldn't do effective uh you know close air support and things like that but one thing i will say i'll caveat that by saying right the Russians have all these assets and the ability to do so, and they still can't make significant gains on the battlefield. So that should be indicative of the Ukrainians' um, ability to do the same as well. Um, so, I, and, and mind you, do the same, the idea that they're going to do the same with assets they've never used before, 
right? With F-16s and, and Leopards and Abrams, right? I think there's also a reason, This so I'm like droning on, but there's also a reason we haven't seen them commit Abrams really to the fight yet. Because I, and we've seen obviously U.S. decision makers in the past kind of, you know, you know, kind of hold, hold out the Abrams hand, and, you know, you know, tanker um, competitions and things like that when it comes to our allies and partners. But I think we don't want to see a bunch of Abrams getting destroyed. Um, but yeah, I just think there's a lot of things here that, you know, contributed to the failure of the counteroffensive. Yeah, you know, just just one quick point, and then I'll let Sino take it because I know he's he's had his hand raised for a bit. One of the main issues that I have talked on a lot when we do these episodes, and it it's a hill I'll die on, honestly. Like I will hammer this point uh, until the day I die. This this counteroffensive, it was just it was not situated well. Um, this is coming at a time when Ukraine, for some godforsaken reason decided to make Bakhmut the hill to die on, right? When it was not strategically important, they made it politically important for some, God knows why. Um, and it was just stupid. They had their best units there, their most combat experienced. And at the time, before all this Western aid started flowing in, best equipped units, um, most motivated units, right? Looking at guys like the Third Assault Brigade and stuff like that. You could say you could say a lot of things about those guys and the ideology of some of them in the brigade, but they are one of Ukraine's best uh, combat units. You know, um, you just can't argue that. They made Bakhmut the hill to die on. At the same time, they're beginning this counteroffensive, right? When these guys, these brand new brigades taking part in the counteroffensive, got like four months of training. These are guys that were like newly conscripted, right? They're not veterans. They're getting this new Western equipment. They're getting trained in places like England and elsewhere in the West. And they only got four months of training before launching this large scale counteroffensive, right? To basically take the initiative, like the strategic initiative for 2023. Um, and it's just, it's not smart. You know, these guys did not have nearly enough training. There was no unit cohesion because they didn't have long enough training, right? Four months is not a whole hell of a lot. And Ukraine decided to keep their best units in Bakhmut to basically bleed them out for God knows why. Um, but again, that's just a quick point. Sino, what do you got? I would say that regarding the North Korean help, while it is giving, while it is giving the Russians a respite regarding or renewed strength, you have to understand that the ammunition, the ammunition is not the best quality. Quality, matter of fact, the um, KN23 that was used, they even remarked how poorly made they were, and these were supposed to be the missiles that are supposed to form the key. Uh, key uh, key component of North Korea's offensive capability. So just for the fact that the missiles that are just poorly made that Russia has to rely on them, it illustrates one of desperation that the sanctions are working. They can't build any more Icelanders or any other missiles of that type because they can't get the components. Not only that, but it illustrates how far the Russians 
fallen when you have to go to a country like North Korea just to get artillery shells, just to get anti-tank missiles. Although we haven't seen them yet on the, uh, we haven't seen them yet on the battlefield. But going back to John's point about, in years, Brody, about um, being a, about not being able to use Western equipment effectively on the part on the, on Ukraine's part. I think it's. I hate to say this. I think it's more it's more of Ukraine's thinking rationale that the they will be able to receive an unlimited stock of weapons from the United States and Western countries when that's not even the case. I mean, we're running out of ammunition, at least ammunition that we can give out freely even now, even before the Israel, the Israel conflict. And that's actually adding strain to us, uh, to our ability to do so. Not only that, but some countries also understand that they need to restart their defense and their industrial base, but do they have the domestic do they have the political, the domestic political resolve to do so? I don't really think so. At least in some of the more small, in some of the smaller countries. Yeah, yeah, good points, Judean. Um, yeah, I absolutely agree uh, with Sino talk. Um, listen, let's bring this back to hearts and minds for a second, because um, a lot of what I channel through is Chalmers Johnson and. And these notions of blowback that Russia inevitably always walks with. I mean, they swing hard, they swing wide, and they usually cause a lot of disruption with all of their strategy, right? So, you know, between all of us, we can look at the world right now and global conflicts that are sprouting up everywhere. And we can understand that to a large degree, this has to do with Russian interference, that they're trying to actually put strain on the supply chain. Uh, especially from the United States. And, you know, we can draw from this, um, we, we can understand this rather from several sources of information. Sometimes uh, it's even their public stance, you know? So that strategy, I think, is going to cost Russia in a big way, in an unintended way in the next few years. I think that it was a response to the counteroffensive failure. And I think that it was the, it was perceived to be the final push that would break the West's back when it came to Ukraine. Um, but the truth is, is um, ultimately, I think that it actually cost Russia a, a severe amount of diplomatic uh, connections and opportunities. And I think that it may come around to, to bite them in terms of uh, their economy and in terms of their strategy, their global strategy, especially, and it's not sustainable. Um, you know, so I guess we'll, we'll see what happens, but I do think that it's, it's a classic post Soviet Russian concept to just burn whatever fuel you have to, to continue on. And in the course of their desperation that Sino talk has described, they haven't just, relied on bad munitions 
and they haven't just bought poor material, but they've also shaken hands with people that they've never shaken hands with before in public in daylight. And they've um, made deals that they can't walk back from. You know, I'm talking about Venezuela. I'm talking about Hezbollah. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised in the future if we heard um, about them in Hamas. I mean, if you look at the FSB calendar for 2023, their unit calendar, they're wearing Hezbollah patches in the calendar. So it just shows you um, a real dichotomy in Russian thinking for the last 20 years, a real separation of strategy and global conversation. So I, I think that that's going to really sink deep on them in the next eight or nine months. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I'm definitely interested to see the the impacts of this war long term, you know, if if and when uh, it ends going on from there. Now, I'll I'll make a quick point real quick and then John, I'll I'll let you take it. Um I I won't say I'll push back on uh on these points Sino talk, but I will I will caveat them a little bit. So I have no doubt that the Russians are having some issues on terms of missile production when they're having to go up against Western sanctions and stuff like that. But they they are still producing missiles in a, in a fair amount of them, right, to make up for some of the problems that they've encountered post-invasion. They're running like triple shifts at factories to produce missiles, right? And obviously it's, it's not to the... Um, rates that they would like to produce them right which is why they're running triple ships and why they're having to buy missiles from north korea to kind of supplement that supply right but they are still churning out their own stuff but the fact that they are buying ballistic missiles from north korea does does say something to your point and then as far as artillery ammo goes i mean yeah the say ammo is uh i mean it's like dog shit you know to to be perfectly honest i i wouldn't want to buy artillery ammo from north korea you know but um it's some of it does still work, you know, North Korea, correct me if I'm wrong, is one of, you know, the largest artillery armies in the world, right? So even though the dud rates of their artillery shells are very high that they've given to Russia, they've given so much to Russia that even if you take all the artillery shells that are duds out of the equation, it's still, you know, I mean, leaps ahead of what Ukraine got from the European Union, for example. Um, even, you know, Judean brought up this statistic that we have here in the notes. Ukraine, I'm sorry, Russia has gotten more artillery ammunition from North Korea in the past four months than Ukraine has gotten from the entire European Union since the invasion began. And again, dud rates are high for North Korean ammunition, but they've gotten so much that it is still a force multiplier, even taking those dud rates into account. Sino? I agree with you, uh, Brody. It's just, it just the fact that for a country who has a supposedly endless supply of military equipment and personnel like Russia has to go to the Hermit Kingdom to ask the, to ask North Korean to ask the North Korean leader triple um, XL large. Um, <laughs> just to give them munitions. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a little embarrassing, right? And I mean, North Korea is, is a hermit kingdom that they've propped up for decades. So the tables have, have kind of turned. Um, yeah, it's not, not even that. It's just like in my, whenever I wrote about the, uh, 
the missile landing. You know, I've mentioned in the analysis that, you know, North Korea wants the data from those missile launches. They want whatever they have, whatever the Russians gain from that, uh, from the, uh, from those launches so they can improve upon their ballistic missiles, uh, missiles. Yeah. Especially if they have like stuff, especially if they do go up against the Patriot system. Now, and I mentioned this is that Russia would be hesitant to give them the information because one, they don't want to anger South Korea or at least, uh, or at least push, uh, uh, to do the following, push them towards a greater security relationship with Japan and the United States. And then also, um, two can, two can play that game. Just like South Korea, just like North Korea has a big arsenal of, of, uh, artillery shells and missiles and weapon systems. South Korea has the same thing, but theirs actually work. They actually yeah, have, and, yeah. And to your point, um, South Korea has been providing Ukraine with a lot of artillery shells again more so than the entire European Union combined. And South Korea has probably saved Ukraine's ass in that regard because, honestly, they haven't gotten jack shit from the European Union as far as artillery shells go. And South Korea has really been able to save their supplies, um, you know, even though Ukraine is not taking in as much ammo as they are expending. Um, they're, they're still in sort of a dire situation in that regard. It would be even worse if they didn't have South Korea to back them up. Well, I mean, regarding South Korean support to Ukraine, it was indirect because what really is what, what, um, because the support was the agreement was that the United States will receive South Korean military uh, South Korean artillery shells, and then and in return, the United States would send their artillery shells to Ukraine at a later date. No, 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 like no, like. They'll be like it, it's essentially a swap. Like whatever you send, whatever the United States sends to Ukraine, the United States will get the equivalent amount from South Korea. So this that so North Korea uh, supplying Russia with the KN-23 and possibly other ballistic missiles likely changed that calculus to where the United to where the South to where South Korea can just essentially say. We're just going to cut out the middlemen to start supplying uh, Ukraine with, uh, with, uh, um, with artillery shells directly. Oh, you you have a problem with SAM systems? Uh, you have a problem with ballistic missiles? Okay, we have we have SAM systems that are actually tailor made to take out North Korean missiles. How many do you want? Interesting. Yeah, it's it's one of those things in which. For Russia, it was a short-term, maybe a short-medium-term gain, but they will end up losing in the long run because South Korea can produce. South Korea by itself cannot produce the European Union, and both artillery, new artillery shells, and also more advanced hardware. Yeah, South Korea is absolutely uh, a defense powerhouse in in the region and, and really in the world um i don't think russia took that into account yeah
John, I've kept you waiting for a bit. What do you got? No, no, no problem. But but um, so I I would actually so I may be the playing a bit of devil's advocate here, but I'm also pushing back a bit. I, I so I largely interpreted Russia's um actions a little differently. So I'll agree with you guys that it's kind of like you guys. I don't know if any of you guys watch the show Billions, but if anyone is listening does, is you know that episode where where uh, the main character right he has to go to that like um. He has to go to this guy who's not well known, and well, he's well known, but not for for being kind of greasy, because he kind of took his he took the companies to a certain place, right? That's Russia invading Ukraine, right? And so he has to kind of turn to this 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 fund, you know, this guy who runs his fund, but like he's not well known, and you don't really want to shake hands with him. And he ends up deciding not to do the deal at the end of the episode. But this is literally this. I see this Russia kind of in the same position, except they they shook his hand at the end of the episode and went through with it. Now, I think the position Russia's in, though, is different. Now, if we had the same conversation a year ago, I'd be 100% agreeing with you guys. But if we look at the geopolitical dynamic now and how it's changed, right? So I think one thing that's very, that's, uh, if there's one thing that this relationship with North Korea is indicative of, is indicative of its increased, um, you know, ties with China, right? Because um, we kind of all know that, you know, North Korea is essentially Chinese satellite state at this point, right? Um, I mean, the second that we heard that Russia was going to be, you know, Putin was going to be meeting with um, Kim Jong-un, many people just assumed that they were, this is really just, you know, trying to buy within through North Korea, supplying Russia. Now, there's no evidence to support that as of yet, but this is something, a suspicion that I've had for a very long time. Um, even if you look at like, you know, where some of these transfers are going down, it's like real convenient for China to just be like, hey, let me pop over some of these materials over the border. And there's also, it would be very easy for China to, you know, send stuff to North Korea because there's always things going back and forth between China and North Korea. So you can, you know, justify it through satellite, you know, satellite imagery and stuff. But like, hey, we're just sending them the coal that we always send them. We're back and forth, right? Um, so stuff like that. Um, now, when you talk about the position Russia's in, I do believe that they're now gathering not only to themselves, but China's gathering to themselves and Russia's part of this dynamic. Right. We see bricks and not necessarily bricks, but it's just this kind of unofficial what some may want to call an axis of evil. Right. I, I would just call it a non-U.S. aligned nation. We now see them making um, concerted efforts to kind of um, subvert U.S. The, well, not only just the rule of law, but the U.S. led rule of law and that dynamic. Um, we, we see this going on right now in the Middle East. Right. Where Iran. It, um, and so I think if Russia was in the position that some that you guys are or some, some of you are insinuating they would be in they wouldn't be able to empower deviant nations to do what they're doing now, right? And so we see Iran would never do this, right? Uh, even arguably even two years ago, right? Iran would not have the, the boss to do this or pull anything like this off. We're trying to subvert the rule of law to this level in a region. Um, now, the, obviously, the relationship with Russia has allowed them to do this. Um, we see China willing to come to the Middle East and act as a, what they like to call a, a stabilizing force, but we kind of all know they're just... <laughs> They, they just kind of, you know, they're very happy to see the United States kind of trip and fall um, and trip ourselves up over and over again. I think uh, one thing that's uh, is evidence of this is right there in action as, you know, in the in the uh, frameworks that they're a member. Of. But they voluntarily joined these anti-piracy frameworks and their, their naval vessels have done nothing for the past two months. Right. Um, I think we all remember the quote from uh, um, White House NSCCSC, John Kirby, when he said the Chinese vessels were in the area, but yet did nothing as missiles are flying and hitting uh, commercial vessels, right? Um, and so at one point, I believe they were even hailed and did not answer. So, right, um, and they're part of these anti-piracy frameworks. They're supposed, this is their job, right? That's the only reason they're in the region. Um, 
And so I I would push back a little bit and just say that I don't believe Russia's kind of in this hard place anymore. We've seen, um, and, uh, Rhoda, you mentioned this, right, that um, we've seen Russia is still producing these missiles. They're still producing new tanks, albeit, you know, they're um, modifying older tanks and things like that. But the fact they even have a domestic defense industry where Ukraine doesn't really have one, um, you know, they're trying to revitalize it now. But I think the Russian uh, defense industry has been revitalized for at least a year now, right? Um we, the only reason we saw them, you know, kind of scale down their missile campaign was because they were saving them up for the winter, right? I, I think we've had that in the notes as well, right? Um, and this is something that we kind of all, you know, we saw this last winter, right? But they didn't do it. They didn't really, you know, save the the missiles up that well. They, it was really pockmarked, you know, campaign. It wasn't really that concerted. Now we see a way different effort going on here. Now uh, compound that with the use of the Shahed drones and the loitering munitions, right? which they got, you know, obviously through Iran. Um, and now they have the domestic capability to build these now, so they can pump these out as fast as they want. Um, whereas we only can expect Ukrainian aid to decrease in the next year, whereas I will see the Russian defense industry to be, you know, exponentially increasing. Um, uh, we can, now getting into mobilization of forces, I think this is a different thing. I can't speak personally to the, the current... Um, social attitude within Russia towards the war, right? But there's one thing that I do constantly see hyped up, right? Every time a small thing happens, even when Wagner happened, right? I, you know, people were like, oh, it's over, it's done, right? And I think people hype up, they overemphasize the, well, not overemphasize, they, they, um, they overestimate essentially the, the ability that, you know, Putin, uh, they underestimate the ability Putin has to hold on to power, right? And they also um, underestimate the amount of just BS that the Russians in general as a people can take, right? I mean, I, I consistently come back to this metric, right? In World War II, in one pocket, the Germanys, I mean, the Germanys, the Germans pocketed and reduced a force of 500,000 in one pocket. This is like in a couple of days. And so it, and I don't want to make the argument that the Soviet Union social attitude is the same as today because it's, I guarantee you it's not, but that it's it speaks to the manpower that Russia has that, that Russia can call upon that they haven't even really begun to call upon yet. And we see Ukraine, you know, now having to put, you know, women into I'm not saying that women is a bad thing on the front lines, but it may be indicative of their, you know, having manpower problem. We saw them uh, you know, just call for this uh, increased mobilization of what was it, uh three hundred thousand to four hundred thousand uh new forces. Um I'm actually skeptical that they're gonna even be able to make that number. Um and so now, now for me, it's a thing, it's a question of whether, even if we were to supply them with all the same amount of aid we did last year and the year before, would they even be able to feel this stuff, right? Um, and so uh, I think bodies is going to become a big problem. And then the economies as well. I think we're, like I said before, we're trying to revitalize Ukraine's domestic defense industry far too late now. Um, if we hadn't done it the day that Russia went into Crimea, we should have been trying to work with them to do this the day Russia invaded Ukraine, or at least in the in the month prior to that right getting these things going and i we didn't really see that um and and knowing that the success of the ukrainians uh is success the ukrainian success on the battlefield is contingent on western aid right um I, russia knows this right and so russia will double down as much as it wants to um and so we at this point last thing i'll say is right we see in in multiple theaters of uh conflict uh, uh theaters of competition around the world right we see U.S. influence either decreasing or being challenged even more. And Russia knows this as well. Iran knows this. China knows this. And so Russia's banking on the fact that we'll get war weary, not necessarily the Ukrainians. I think the Ukrainians have the will to fight. They'll have the will to fight till, um, you know, the last building key falls, right? But 
the Russia's banking on the fact that the Western nations who are backing Ukraine will get war weariness before Ukraine does and will and will uh, capitulate. Right? We already see. Um, we can, like I said before, we can expect Ukraine's aid to decrease specifically because of that war weariness. Right? Um, a lot of people think we really don't have any. Um, we shouldn't have any vote in this fight at all, which it may be a valid statement, but um, you know, that's you know, to each his own. Um, you know, we can talk about deterring Russia for the you know indefinite future things like that, but. I, I do think that Russia is banking on this and Russia, well, well, like I said, a year ago, I would say that they made, you know, the wrong, they, they betted, you know, they made the wrong bet. I think now, though, it has turned out to work for them pretty great. Now, I don't know if this is all pre-planned. Everyone likes to say, right, because somebody benefits from something, they, they had a hand in it. That's not necessarily true, right? We saw people saying Russia planned the Hamas attack. Just because they benefited from that doesn't mean they, they planned it, right? A lot of people are exploiting this Hamas attack. To this is exactly what Iran did, right? Um, we're now kind of hearing that Iran was kind of a not necessarily in the dark, but you know they didn't know that they were going to do an attack to this extent. So um, we see Russia essentially exploiting, you know, the, the losses and the the um, lack of cohesive um, uh, strategy coming from Western nations, particularly the United States at this point. And China's going to do the same thing, which is doing it right now actively in the Philippine Sea, um, in the South China Sea. Um, so, you know, I, I, that's that's kind of my take on it. I, I don't think Russia has messed up at this point. I actually think they're making some pretty smart decisions by gathering these kind of non-US aligned nations around them, whether they, you know, had good relations with them or not. I, I think a big thing now is um, in the same way in the Cold War, right? Um, hey, you don't like the United States, well, come over here. You know, this is the, we, we hate the United States club. And um, so that's, that's something that we should definitely keep an eye on though. Yeah, all fair points. Um, and to your point about war weariness, I think we all need to keep in mind that the election in our country is coming up in 10 months. Um, and I and I do think that our aid to Ukraine is very much uh, going to be contingent on the outcome of that election. You know, if if Trump wins, um, that aid may very well be in danger. And this is not me making, you know, telling my opinion as to how much we should support Ukraine. I have my own opinions. I'm not going to state them, right? And I don't care what anybody believes. That's that's our own opinion. It doesn't matter to me. Um, if Trump wins, though, I, I do think that that aid is in serious jeopardy, right? Again, whether I agree with that or not, doesn't matter. Um, if DeSantis wins, that aid is definitely in jeopardy. Uh, if Nikki Haley wins, that's that's a different story. I think uh, we're, in, we're in Ukraine for the long haul, although I don't envision Nikki Haley winning. That's just me personally. Um, but yeah, again, just something to keep in the back of your mind, right? And then you, you have to keep Congress in mind as well. You know, um, there's a lot of negotiations going on right now in Congress regarding our aid to Ukraine. Um, it's running dry at the moment because none has been approved for a bit. And that's because there, I should say, is a lack of negotiations going on uh, as far as funding for Ukraine goes and other things that are being tied to that. So we, we need to keep the political situation at home in mind if we are to kind of predict what aid to Ukraine is going to look like in the future. Judan, I've kept you waiting for a bit. What do you got? So interestingly, um, you know, and, and I, I completely agree with everything John has said. Um, it's very apt, honestly. The 
the the opinion of, of the West and specifically of the U.S. has been damaged in the last few years. But what I've noticed in Israel specifically, especially after October 7th and the Hamas attacks, is that the entire country is galvanized with not only the West, but also the United States, which is interesting because after and during uh, the Obama era, that relationship was was very damaged. And it's the reason that you saw Netanyahu sort of courting with Putin and they had a very close personal relationship, allegedly, um, also with China and sort of trying to develop an economic and uh, diplomatic relationship with China in, in a much deeper way. Um, interestingly, all of that on October 7th is on its head and um, China and Russia are closed for business in Israel. But this also means that Israel's neutrality as it pertains to supplying Ukraine or supplying Taiwan are now very much in question as well. And we may see uh, systems like Iron Dome and David Sling and other materials like this show up in Ukraine. And I also think that for a country with roughly 10% Russian uh, population, um, over 1.2 million Russians living in Israel for a country uh, of small millions uh, compared to others, you know, it's an interesting thing to see. Uh, we have one of the largest Russian expat populations in the world. And we also have right now one of the most anti-Kremlin populations in the world. Um, and to be, to be frank with you, I'm not sure if, if it even matters that it comes out that there was evidence of them helping planning or no planning at all. Their reputation um, in Israel is destroyed. I would say for the next 50 or 100 years, um, it's resting on a culture of real um, grudge holding uh, for starters. And I think that will damage them in the, in the Middle East. They have a lot of investment there, especially in Syria and in Lebanon. We might also see those investments turn to ash. We don't know what could happen in the next six months. But um, I will say that it's interesting that there was a clear desire to break countries away from the U.S. And in that particular instance, the opposite has happened in a very strong way. Uh, if you look at videos of Tel Aviv or even Jerusalem, the American flag is flying everywhere. Um, Israelis went in mass to burn the Russian passports uh, in front of the embassy. There have been very drastic and um, social uh, responses to the Russian position. And I think that in, in, a, in a larger way, in, in a macroscopic way, that feeling and that sentiment will become viral in the West quite soon. I think once people begin to remember what's going on in, in Ukraine again, once sort of the publicity between what's happening in Israel and what's happening in Ukraine balance out together, I think that we'll see the court of public opinion that we were referring to before uh, change in a very stark way against Russia. And you know, we also discuss doctrine, doctrine for materials, doctrine for diplomacy, doctrine for society. But to be honest with you, in, in my opinion, Russian doctrine really uh, ought to change. I think that their social doctrine is sort of, um, has always been quantity over quality. Like that's sort of why they're, they have no issue relying on North Korean missiles. I don't think it's a concern of theirs because they, they will always send 10 when they needed one. They will always send 100 when they needed 10. And they need sort of that low-grade, high-durability 
uh, mechanic to all of their materials for that reason. As we were discussing before, it's a highly aggressive doctrine, one where they can spend the men, spend the missiles, and they need expendable materials for all. So, yeah, we're, we're not seeing Russian-made materials being used as much as they were in the beginning, but I think that that works in their benefit. At the same time, because of their diplomacy and because of their development of this access, uh, access um, to support their war, I think that they may in the future cause a massive surge of materials in Ukraine. Uh, surge of materials that are Western in nature and highly advanced. Because the, you know, just to channel what we were talking about before as well, what's going on in Ukraine is insanely valuable for weapons testing. It, every country that is developing weapon systems would like to try them out in Ukraine. And we saw that with Iran with the Shahed drones. Um, and now we're seeing them actually being implemented in the Middle East. So it wouldn't surprise me that if North Korea is stepping up as a supplier for ballistic missiles, that countries like Israel would want their opportunity to test against them with their defense systems. So let's see what happens. Yeah, you know, just a quick point. It, it did seem, and this is before October 7th, of course, but it did seem as Russia would become closer and closer with Iran, you know, especially in terms of trading weapons, right? You know, getting suicide drones, talks of getting missiles. We haven't seen anything yet, but their talks have allegedly been going on for over a year at this point. It seems like those news stories will come out and Israel will kind of say, well, hey, maybe we should give air defense to Ukraine or maybe we should give this to Ukraine. Um, again, just just a small point, not, not an argument. I'm really trying to have just just an observation. John, what do you got? Yeah, yeah, I, I guess I, the only thing I, I did agree, I agree with you on the the uh, idea that right the, the battlefield in Ukraine has been a test bed for like every type of weapon system we can imagine. Um, I think the last time we spoke um, when we had Chris on from Project Leaflet, right, uh, Bodhi, we were talking about like who knew that like, um, you know, man pads would be a good thing to shoot down cruise missiles, right? Who knew that that was like even a viable thing? Right. No one would, and remember, we were talking about how I didn't even believe when I was hearing it until we started seeing video after video of, you know, these guys shooting down man pads. I mean, shooting down man pads, shooting down cruise missiles that are flying over their heads. I mean, I was, I was in disbelief. But like, but when you think about it, it kind of makes sense. And so without, you know, these um, man pad teams being put in this position because of the war, I don't think uh, forces around the world would have been employing that in that nature. And now we see Ukraine, right? Um, uh, working in man pads into their, you know, you know, their operational and strategic level um, AD frameworks, right, which is not something that's thought of that's really supposed to be kind of a tactical weapon. So we we see weapons development, like Judean said, I think that's a huge thing. We see weapons development. We see a lot of stuff getting put on hold now, right, because they're like, wait a minute, this this is useless, right? Switchblade was a huge thing, right? We saw Switchblades, yeah. Ukrainians were like, this sucks, right? Um, <laughs> they're like, this sucks, give me an FPV drone, right? Um, so we saw, you know, we saw stuff like that. Um, we see that uh, I think the largely the M10 Booker program is going to be heavily affected by the Ukraine war. I think it's going to be a huge thing. I think tanks, uh, the future of tanks, well, I don't think they're in peril in any way. I do think it, we're going to see a lot of different tanks now. I think we're going to see a lot more light tanks, things like that. The only place I'd push back in is that if you look at the where people are, so generally the people who advocate a lot for aid to Ukraine, there's this idea. Now, that I, I personally think is an incorrect idea, but there's this 
idea that's very prevalent that we can't do both at the same time. And we've seen the DLD consistently say, you know, we can walk and chew gum. I think that we've all heard that multiple times, right? Um, and so, uh, like, for instance, there was this big, you know, people with this big uh, hubbub about when they, we heard we had diverted a couple thousand um, artillery shells to Israel that were meant for Ukraine. Um, and, and if you really look at it, right, it was like the amount of artillery shells that they would have fired in like one or two days, right? It really wasn't in the grand scheme of things all that much. People took it as like, oh my goodness, that means we're not going to be able to, you know, supply Ukraine. And so we don't see people fighting to do both. Um, now, that brings me to another point, right? I, I do think that there's um, U.S. defense planners and it's also Western defense planners are um, looking at a lot of key factors and looking at a current and emerging threats, right? Um, and this is before even October 7th now. And so we're starting to think like at some point we do have to have a pivot. And so that brings me to, I think I wrote my last piece right on, uh, that wasn't the forecast, right? But I think I wrote my last piece on uh, ind independent European defense frameworks, right? And the idea of they don't really want to have a conversation about ending the war in Ukraine because it also means that they have to have a conversation about independent European defense without the United States, you know, backfilling everything um, and, and uh, maintaining this massive force posture in Europe, right? At the end of the day, there does need to be a full, not a full pivot, but a, a meaningful pivot to, to the Indo-Pacific region, I think. Um, we're, you know, we're trying to do it. We're trying to leverage our allies and partners as much as we can. But I actually don't see... Um, I, I don't see how the war in the Israel-Hamas Israel war or any of the wider conflicts in the region would galvanize us to spend more to, unless something drastic changes on the battlefield, right? So say, save that. I think that's the only thing that would cause us to be like, hey, let's send them everything. If something happened, there's some type of breakthrough or Russia made a huge mistake or something within Russia happened. And so there's, right now, I don't see any indicators or any warnings that would say that one, either something's going to happen in Russia, right? We kind of saw Putin, if, if the whole Wagner thing didn't topple Putin, I don't know what will at this point, right? So, um, I mean, I, I was even convinced. I was like, oh, yeah. And then when he shot him out the sky, I mean, it was so brazen. I thought he would wait at least a couple of years. He didn't wait like two months. It was like a month and a half later, he shot him out the sky. And, you know, I was like, okay, yeah, Putin, Putin knows what he's doing, at least for a little bit. Um, and so I... I and it is kind of worrisome, right? Because the last thing we want, right, is Ukraine to get me to fall to Russia. I don't see that happening either because we've seen how Russia's, you know, done their offensive, conducted their offensive campaigns as well. They've been abysmal, right? Um, so um, unless there's some massive doctrine change, doctrinal change within the Ukrainian military. And I do think that they, uh, one, I can't remember who, one of the two of you, Judean or Brody, you, one of you guys mentioned that you don't see them being able to do any, um, significant offensive movements for that at least the next year, right? Maybe uh, it would be maybe even too early next year. So I think if they sit down, they really consolidate, they replenish fully, they reconstitute fully, increase their force posture and their force makeup, and then and really, you know, have a look look internally at how they operate doctrinally. Um, I also think, uh, I believe Brody, you mentioned this, but I think Sino mentioned this as well, like how many, how many fires they're expending, right? Um, I do think they really need to get into that. I thought that's something that was being uh, harped upon in the training. Maybe it wasn't. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that's going to be a huge thing. But I just don't see a lot of more aid going to there, especially as defense planners kind of look to the Indo-Pacific region more and more. Yeah, well, so, you know, so on that topic, we might as well get into uh, kind of where we see things heading, right? Um, you were saying that I, I don't believe that Ukraine is going to be able to 
conduct a large scale offensive this year. And I, and I do think, uh, I do think that is the case. Um, again, the summer counteroffensive, it was, it was a failure. Again, if you're being honest about it, they bled their forces in Bakhmut needlessly. They bled their forces in the South for a point, right? They had an objective, but they did not accomplish that objective in those Russia has a manpower advantage, right? So, uh, Ukraine needs to keep their casualty rates in mind, right? And obviously, no shit, because we're talking about uh, watching, you know, mobilization and stuff like that, additional waves of mobilization. So I think Ukraine needs to take this year to shore up their combat power. That means uh, introducing new combat units, right? That means stockpiling ammo to the extent that they can, uh, stockpiling pieces of equipment, whether it be tanks, uh, you know, armored vehicles and such, things like that, um, you know, surface-to-air missiles, stuff like that, that is vitally important to their defensive and offensive capabilities. Um, they need to work on mobilization this next year, obviously, which they know, and they're trying to hammer out the specifics of that right now in the parliament. Um, and they need to learn the lessons of 2023 and particularly the counteroffensive. And I think they need to take this year to do it. Um, they need to really harp on the defense this year. They need to dig in like the Russians dug in in the South over the summer and take this year, defend all the territory they can and, and come back next year swinging, uh, hopefully, in their case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I do think, right, like I said before, and like you just said, right, that they're, they shouldn't jump the gun with this one again. Um, because that would be catastrophic. That see that jumping the gun again, right? Um, with as weakened as as I would assume they would be after this, their force, but at least from their force makeup and along the front lines, right? From what I've been able to know, right? Um, if if they committed their forces again and then got would it get decimated again, then Russia it, Russia could easily, you know, it would be easier for Russia to break through their front lines. Yeah, um, and now, that's and that's what Russia does. Right. So don't don't make the same mistakes they're doing, because that's that's why Russia's offensive power is just it's been dog shit, dude. I mean, Gerasimov does not wait until the forces are constituted for a proper, successful counter or offensive, not counteroffensive, just straight up offensive. Yeah. He just launches them right off the bat and it really doesn't doesn't really yeah. get him anywhere, you know, when taking into the land capture to casualties taken ratio. Right. It's not good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that also speaks to like what we were talking about before, right? The the political will, or or you know, by hyping up something, or right, where I think the the big campaign, the counteroffensive campaign, quote unquote, if you called it that, right, kind of pushed the Ukrainians to commit their forces too early. Putin, you know, hammering home these war aims at every cabinet meeting or whatever they call them, right? Um, uh, right, is uh probably you know on their minds constantly too. Like, hey, I don't want to get sacked, or I don't want to fall out a window. Because, you know, I'm not making gains on the battlefield. So I'm going to consistently, consistently, consistently be on the offensive. Um, and so at the end of the day, you're never going to be able to reconstitute fully and, and things like that. So that's going to be a huge problem. I think that's going to be a huge thing for the next year, reconstitution, who does it the best. Right? Yeah, you know, um, Suravikin, Sir, Sir uh, when he was in charge of forces in Ukraine before he got uh, sacked, that's one thing he took a lot of criticism on was like not – being on the offensive, right? But yeah. I mean, he he did his job, right? And he was probably yeah. one of the best uh, overall commanders of Russian forces in Ukraine that they've had since the invasion. You know, he's generally been known as sort of like a defensive commander, right? But he like he was the right person for the job at the time. He 
understood that he had to cut his losses in Kherson, right? He had to pull some of his forces back so he didn't take uh, needless casualties, right? Because his lines of supply were not great. They were not stable. Um, he went on the defensive. He established uh, Russians' defense in Zaporizhia, which worked for them over the summer, obviously. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so again, I mean, you really need to know when to go on the defense and when to go on the offense. You cannot just jump into the offense like Gerasimov has been doing you know, all this time, because it, it really doesn't get you anywhere. And unfortunately, Ukraine did the same thing over the summer, and it really didn't get them anywhere. Yeah, and if you want to say, like, if they just both keep doing the same thing, kind of loose to what I said before, right, which is the idea, right, they can both keep doing the same thing, right? And uh, I think people have this idea, right, sometimes. Um, I, n nobody, obviously, you know, on this pod right now, but, you know, we, I think we've kind of all heard the people who are like, you know, we'll keep fighting as long as we can, you know, we'll, we'll you know, and until, you know, the job is done, but at some point you're going to run out of people. And so it, it, just from a numbers perspective, right, Ukraine is going to run out of people before Russia does, right? And I, I don't see the United States or any Western nation committing forces to Ukraine to fight in a war, right? Um, we see memes about this on Instagram, right? Fighting, you know, going to fight in Ukraine and stuff like this. It's never going to happen. I don't think we would, they would ever be able to galvanize the populace to do this, right? So just from a numbers perspective, Russia can arguably keep doing this. Now, I can't speak for what, like I said before, the social attitude of how much they want to, of, of the, of, uh, how much they've, they'll get to the point before they've had their fail. But I'd be willing to make the argument that it's way after the Ukrainians kind of get war weary or, um, or just kind of run out of forces. And I'd hate to see that happen. So I do think that, like you mentioned, there needs to be a significant change in the way this war is being fought on both sides. Now, if, hey, if the Russians uh, don't, you know, don't make this change, well, you know, I'm not going to be all that mad, right? But the, it would be kind of awful to see the Ukrainians kind of, it, because like, let's all remember, right? It was three days to Kiev, and we and I believed it. I was like, there's no way that they're going to be at, I'm pretty surprised we are where we are now. Um, so, I mean, I, I definitely been, you know, they've been fighting the good fight, but um, it, they're, they've got to change the way they're fighting the good fight because I they won't be able to fight it much longer if they keep on doing what they're doing, I think. But um, not to mention eight, you know, like we mentioned, should be decreasing probably. Um, and so, whereas I only expect Russia's aid, you know, just stocks of everything to be going up, um, uh, you know, we like to talk about the U.S., you know, industry when we galvanize it. Same thing can be said for Russia, right? Um, it's arguably Russian industry, you know, after, you know, we totally backfilled everything doing Barbarossa. But it's arguably Russian industry, them galvanizing that industry that was able to push back the Germans, right? It's the it's the um shoddily um welded T thirty four tanks that push back the Germans, right? So um things like that. So you done? Just really quick here. I'll <clears throat> I'll never forget watching uh I forget which general it was in Russia. Maybe it wasn't a general, but it was a member of high command saying to a public forum that they could just print 15 million men and take a walk through Europe. And I, I believe him. That's like the worst part. And like, let's never forget that the rush, if anybody, Russia, I mean, China can do something similar in their own way. Right. But there is no other country in the world that is printing 15 million Russian fighters. And and aggressively and that they that they could at any moment mobilize a force that ukraine can't contend with it's, it's a troubling part of this all i mean 
they are definitely not throwing everything they have at this. So I agree with you. Yeah, Ukraine's, uh, they've definitely got to get their manpower issues under wraps for sure. Now, thankfully for their case, uh, I think Russia is going to hold off on another wave of mobilization until after the presidential election in March. Um, I do think they need another round of mobilization if they want to have like a serious large scale offensive because they've taken a lot of casualties since the last wave of mobilization, you know, a year ago, year and a half ago, how, however long it was. Um, and all those guys have been in the field for over a year. You know, you got to start to rotate them out. And sure, you know, ones and twos have probably been rotated back home. But a majority of entire units have been like kept in the field. And that's just it's not good for morale. It's not good for combat effectiveness. And those guys need to go back to Russia, get some training and come back. Um, and they need to be replaced with more, more mobilized personnel if they want to actually like make a difference. But again, Ukraine has a little bit of time to kind of get their shit situated right which is why they're trying to hammer out the details of like this new mobilization plan but we'll kind of see where where things go from there um the fact that the military initially requested a mobilization plan for 450 to 500,000 recruits tells me that things aren't going great now i don't know all the dynamics of mobilization and uh, ukraine's force structure obviously but they have taken a decent amount of casualties and Russia does have the manpower advantage and has had that advantage for over a year now. So Ukraine's got to try and close that gap uh, anywhere they can. And on that same note, uh, BBC using EU data claims that 650,000 military age Ukrainian men have fled Ukraine for Europe since the invasion began. And that doesn't even include those that have fled to the US or Canada or elsewhere. Right. And these are guys that are age 18 to 60, which, according to Ukrainian law right now, as they are in a state of martial law, are people that are like legally obligated to stay in the country because they can be subject to mobilization and conscription. That's a lot of guys to lose, especially when you do not have the manpower advantage. So, um, yeah, things things have got to change and Ukraine has, has got to get the shit situated quick. They have a little bit of time before the Russians launch more mobilization. But again, uh, they shouldn't take their time. They should get working on this now. Yeah, and one thing to say, just so not, just so it doesn't become so no one thinks that this is like some type of a, a Ukraine bashing thing. Right? I mean, I think everything we're saying is factual, right? But um, just to highlight some of the good things that they've done, right? The, the, how, how they've conducted things well. I'm a huge fan of their their strike campaign against the the Black Sea Fleet. I think they, I think there's no better way they could have conducted this, or there's no better way they could have used their the very, very, very limited stocks of long range precision fires that they were given from the West. Um, uh, I was skeptical that they would do something similar like this. I thought they were gonna, that their ta target allocation would be way off. I thought we were gonna see like uh, BM21s getting hit with a storm shadow, and I was really hoping that didn't happen. Thankfully, it didn't. Right, um, because we um, uh, you know, we saw a couple strikes with HIMARS that I was, was skeptical of, you know, why they would allocate, but they quickly, clearly, you know, they've learned that, okay, these are, we, this is more of an operational level asset, could be even used strategically, right? Um, long range fires, even more so, right? And so we see them, I think, when it comes to the long range fires and precision fires, they've been pretty good on with, they've been pretty um, good with that. Whereas we've seen Russia, um, I mean, they'll just hit anything. <laughs> um, and I, I think whereas, like, uh, I believe Judea mentioned this, right, and Sino as well, right, Russia's focusing more so on saturation, right, 
that's why they're that's why they're getting these North Korean missiles because if it fires, <laughs> they'll they'll take it right. If if it lifts off the ground and goes towards the target, if it hits something, they'll take it. And that's why we see them hitting so many so much civilian infrastructure buildings like this. Um, and I, there is definitely a, a huge difference. Like I think on the ground campaign, right? They largely fight the same Ukraine and Russia, but when it comes to their allocation of fires, I think it's it's very different. And I. I am. I that's something I would say. The Ukraine has been doing very well. We've effectively seen them kick the 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 you know um, the most important uh, large surface combatants out of Sevastopol and things like this. Now, um, has it hampered Russia's ability to use these as missile platforms? Not necessarily because they're they're launching long range precision fires from these things as well. So you know they can always stand them off, right? We see them launching them from the Caspian Sea. Actually, as we speak, there's like eleven. Um, T-95s up over the Caspian Sea that are probably launching missiles at Ukraine right now. I, I just, I was seeing that notice before, but um, I, I do think there's something to be said for, right? They just sank, they destroyed that Rapuja class landing ship. Um, uh, we saw them striking the Kerch Bridge and then it was known that they were using Rapuja class landing ships to transport cars and supplies across because the bridge was under so much danger or sometimes even too damaged. Um, that there's a reason Russia is now trying to build a highway and, you know, down from, you know, Russia proper down to Crimea um, in the land uh, that they, in some of their games on the battlefield now, because the Kursk bridge is under threat so much. We see them, these huge barges in front to stop USVs, things like that. So I, I do think largely the Russian Black Sea Fleet has been, has retreated. I think the strike, the successful strikes are great. I think Ukraine's use of also um, emerging technology or, or maybe not necessarily emerging, but never really used before is, is they've been like their, their use of UAV, USVs, but they may not have been the first ones to use them. I think they're the first ones to use them this extensively and they've, they've done a good job doing that. Now, if they can translate some of this ingenuity to the ground, to the, you know, the battlefield on the ground, then I think they'll be good. And I think because if you look at doctrinally, how they're, 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 they, they're knowing just small things like understanding the difference between a strategic and a tactical target or an operational and a tactical and strategic target, right? It's small things, you know, will form the basis for, you know, operations uh, on the grand scale and bigger things. Um, uh, obviously, aid, you know, more aid and maybe contingent on this, but then also the domestic defense industry, I think. So these are some things to look for um, when it comes to, uh, you know, maybe what we could see in the next year. But like, I think we can all agree that consolidation is something they need to focus on heavy right now. I like the points you made about uh, the Black Sea campaign that they've had the strike campaign i i think a lot of people that are pro-ukraine and and wanted are not realistic about how the counteroffensive went tied to they try to tie the black sea strike campaign to the counteroffensive which is wrong those two are they're very two different campaigns right um but the black sea strike campaign has has been very effective you know they have um struck a good portion of Russia's Black Sea fleet. They've had they forced a good portion of the fleet to go to Novorossiysk on the Russian coast of the Black Sea, right? There's still some in Sevastopol, but not nearly as much as there were like pre-invasion, right? And it has been vital to their economy, right? Because they're making their coastline that's still under their control less vulnerable to strikes and they need that coastline for exports and imports, right? Particularly grain. Um and the coastline is still somewhat vulnerable, right? Talking about Odessa and, and other places like that, but not as much so if there were a lot more Russian assets in the Black Sea, for sure. So yeah. that campaign is is definitely vital to uh, their economy and defending their coastline as well. Um, and I expect them to continue that campaign, right? It, 
it's gotten to the point where they strike targets in the Black Sea and Crimea so much it doesn't even surprise me many anymore. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. the same thing. Um, but yeah, gents, I think we've been going at this for a while. So how about we do some saved rounds and closing statements? Uh, give your plugs and we could get out of here. Sino, we haven't heard from you in a bit, so I'll let you go first. So regarding so regarding the outlook, I think it's going to be more along the lines. It's going to be more along the lines of the same what everyone else said. I don't really see Ukraine having the ability to even conduct offensive, even limited offensive operations. And then on the same side, Russia can't either. I don't really see the same for Russia. But I think they'll have a issue regarding manpower because if you look at who they've been, you know, mainly conscripting, it's Russia's undesirables. They're ethnic minorities. People who, for lack of a better term, don't want to see them around anymore. And now that the bottom of that barrel is scraped clean, you more than likely have Putin more likely have to make a decision regarding should he scrape the ethnic Russian cold bell. I think he will have to do that because he needs men. But but um but regarding their but regarding their ability but regarding the Ukraine's ability to receive additional weapon systems, I think it's gonna be less it's gonna be dependent upon what every what everyone uh whatever else what everyone else wants. Like Brody said, the elections are coming up, that's gonna play a factor. Western Europe definitely plays a factor. And then on the flip side, Ukraine's ability to even manufacture armaments, like defense bulletin said. Can they reconstitute it and can they produce that scale? I don't really see it. Mark, you had also some plugs. Where can we find you? Yeah, so regarding you can find me is on Instagram, obviously. Um, I do have a Discord open and a Twitter. They're all on the link tree. I am in the process of creating a YouTube and LinkedIn channel as well. So you'll be able to find me there as well. And as well as another exciting um, announcement later this month. Okay. Well, we'll stay tuned for that. Judean, save grounds and plugs. I mean, listen, um, I think uh, just, just to quickly like close out i think that even though ukraine has been scraping um i think that ukraine is, uh, i think that russia is sort of mainlining jet fuel right now and that's going to cost them very soon um there's always blowback with a country of that size and scale significantly more than a country like ukraine let's see what happens um you guys can catch me on uh instagram the young judean uh, shoot me over uh, an Israeli flag if you want to get accepted into the thing. If you can't do that, you probably shouldn't be there. Bye. Fair enough. And uh, Judean is our newest contributor to Bolton from the Borderlands, so expect to see his work sometime soon. I know you're getting with the uh, CENTCOM desk chief on that, so we'll be 
keeping our eyes open. And John, what do you got? Yeah, not much. I think I, I think I said everything that, you know, closing out kind of before, but, um, you know, just a quick point. I think, um, I think one thing that, you know, you can't hammer home enough is the importance of this conflict for the future of warfare in general. I think, um, there's, there's going to be a, we mentioned before, um, you know, how the battlefield in Ukraine has kind of been a test bed for every type of weapon system we can, uh, imagine and i and, you know we'll even see new type of technologies come forth from it i think that's one thing that pushes innovation has been warfare the most in all of human you know human history right innovation has always been pushed by warfare um I'm not saying it's a good thing but you know it's something that we see um and so I, that's, that's definitely something to keep an eye on um keep your eye out for um the escalation in the red sea uh part one i see him splitting into part two parts that'll by the time this is out that'll be out um, on Bulletin from the Borderlands as a special report. Um, look for uh, another report coming from me and the desk chief of the uh, uh, Mideast desk chief and Central Asia desk chief, Shep, with, and, and Expin as well um, on uh, the Abraham Accords. And you can find me at Defense Bulletin uh, on all platforms. Thanks for having me, man. Gents, thank you all for being here. I had a lot of fun and we need to get together again soon to do this. Let's... Uh not wait so long before we do another Ukraine report, John. Yeah, definitely. All right, boys. Well, you have a good one. Thanks again for being here. Right on. Take it easy. Okay, everybody. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, all your support means a lot to me. I hope you enjoyed that episode as well. Again, we'll try and do these more often. I know it's been a while since we've done the last one. You can find this podcast on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You could also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. Also on Telegram, same name. Please consider supporting us again, Patreon, Substack, or Ko-Fi. You can find all those links in the show notes below. And also, please leave us a five-star rating on the app used to listen to this podcast. That helps us out a lot as well. That is all I have for you guys right now. See you soon.